The Bible reading this morning shall be taken from the book of Hebrew, chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that we consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy things that things the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is dreadful, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Remember those early days after you have received the light, when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accept, accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little, in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who are believed, who believed and are saved. I God by the reason of his word. What value does the past, or does a past event, have upon our future action? This is something many a history teacher has tried to explain to their students. Some to varying degrees of success, more success than others. What does the past have to do with the present? What does what's gone before have to do with what we are facing now and in this time? Uh, Pastor Stephen put up uh, the other week, he put up a little funny post on Facebook. He said, I'm ready for some precedented times. Uh, maybe you are feeling the same way. Uh, we're ready for something different. Uh, a lot of people, and I think every generation has to wrestle with this, they come to a place and they realize this, this is a lot, this is too much, and maybe you've been feeling that lately. What's going on in our world just feels too much, and you're feeling a bit lost and you're feeling a bit at sea. But there's value in understanding how past action impacts present reality, not just in the sense of learning from mistakes of the past, but because in some instances, things that have happened in the past have a fundamental change to bring about upon a reality, and it's a change that's often not understood or is hidden. And this is something that 
our writer this morning is seeking to bring across. Last week, just by way of recap, uh, Pastor Chris, he put up this question, and the question was to the effect that if you, if Jesus has done it all, let's see if I can get it to work. This is not working. There we go. I might have to ride with you, Mariah. You're, you're, you're on it today. This is good. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Chris, uh, he le- left us with this question, if Jesus has, has done it all, then w- what do I do? Maybe you thought about that. Oh, well, what's left for me now? Well, this week is the answer to that question. And so there's a lot in these verses, but I don't want you to lose... Uh, the forest for the trees. So the big idea this week is simply this. Let's boldly draw near to God. Let us, Windsor District Baptist Church, let us boldly draw near to God. The language of proximity and posture dominates this passage. If you had to visually represent yourself in relation to God, where are you in terms of proximity to him? If, if you are leaning one way or another, are you leaning toward God or are you leaning away from God? This text is calling us. I didn't say you should boldly draw near to God. I said let's. Let's all of us do this. Over the last four weeks, we've been considering the great big picture, and we've been looking at what God has been trying to do in Christ. And uh, we, we used Gareth Cockrell's language of the symphony to, to describe these three movements about the work of Christ and how it all intertwined between the heavenly sanctuary, the perfect offering, and the new covenant that was initiated all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he, we finally come to the end of that point. We finally hit the so what? So if you've been checked out over the last three, four weeks, or you've, you've had a mental little filing cabinet and you've stuck it in the drawer of theological stuff that I might investigate later if I'm bored or tired or just feeling particularly inquisitive, if you left it in there, then you're going to struggle with this. Because for the writer, the truths of the last three, four weeks are the basis for the boldness. It's the grounding of our confidence. The author will hear mince few words in what we're being called to do. As we were discussing in Sermon and Scripture this week, this text has a tone of a heightened intensity. In fact, You could say that the whole letter in itself sort of brims with this heightened intensity. This isn't Paul writing saying, well, it was really good of you to think of me and I'm thinking of you too because we love each other, don't we? This is different. This is the parent calling out to the child who's about to step into oncoming traffic saying, hey, watch where you're going. This is the concerned adult in the room, the concerned general, the concerned leader, the one who sees the whole thing and who's saying, hold on a second, the the choice you're about to make is incredibly significant. And in trying to extol the virtues of the right choice and trying to denounce the vices of the wrong choice, he is loud and he's strong. He's firm. But if you haven't, if you haven't considered the last three, four weeks, this is just going to come off to you this morning as maybe a bit too loud, a bit too strong. But the boldness is the key. Let's boldly draw near to God. 
The idea of boldness that sort of brackets this text in the beginning and in the end is sort of a cavalier, free, open door policy (laughs) saying, now that Christ has gone into this way, let's go. Let's take it. Let's follow this to its conclusion. Many of you have met my son, my youngest son, Noah. We, we like to call him the tail that wags the dog in our family. And Noah is blissfully independent. He, 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 is, he knows what he wants and he knows what he needs and he knows what he's on about. And what's going on around him, it, it doesn't, doesn't really faze him. You may have been talking to me one time after church and suddenly you're interrupted by somebody half your size who's totally started taking over the conversation. It's probably him. <laughs> dad, dad, can we go to KFC for lunch today? Dad, dad. We might look at that and say, oh, that's, that's, you know, you shouldn't do that. Those kids need to be taught manners. But that's the boldness with which we are to go to God. It, that's the boldness. That's the, that's the approach. It's, it's that... I am welcome, that, that I've been invited, that there is, a, there is space for me, that this God desires a relationship with me. It's that kind of access that's on offer here. So our big question is, how bold is your faith? We're going to be working towards this, this understanding that, that boldness, I think, for the writer of Hebrews is, is kind of an indicator of the health of your faith. The boldness or confidence with which you trust in Christ is probably an indicator of whether your faith is healthy or it's weak or sick. Now, I'm not trying to to beat up anyone's faith. I don't know that. We can't read faith in other people very well. But I believe the Spirit may have an answer to that question. How bold is our faith? The outline this morning, in Hebrews uh, 10, 19 to 39, there's an exhortation. That means it's, it's, it's an encouragement, it's a calling out. It's an exhortation that calls us to persevere in faith by boldly drawing near to God. This race that we're in calls for endurance. We'll, we'll hear more about that in the coming weeks. And it's this boldness that's going to help you to persevere. A way to remember these three sections, you could say, verses 19 to 25, let's use the access. (laughs) Let's use the access we've been given. Verses 26 to 31, don't refuse the access. Verses 32 to 39, lest you lose the access. Use the access, don't refuse the access, lest we lose the access. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that your spirit would enliven us with the truth. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that are uh, open to you. And Lord, may we rest in what Christ has accomplished for his glory and our good. Amen. We're going to look at sort of three things about bold faith. Uh, this is just sort of maybe to help you remember, but... but But in terms of what we're going to go through today, we're going to see what bold faith does. If you have a bold faith, this is what it does. If we'll see what bold faith doesn't do, sort of the negative of that. And then finally, we're going to see what bold faith remembers. What bold, what's sort of the mindset of a bold faith? So those are the sort of three areas we're looking at this morning. What bold faith does, verses 19 to 25, you're going to see in what is one long sentence in the original language, there's embedded within that three exhortations or commands. Those three commands are, let's approach God, let's hold fast our confession of hope, and finally, let's not forsake meeting together. Sorry, I should back up. Consider one another. And in this section, the, the, the speaker, the writer's appeal, it's appeal on the basis of privilege. It's a look at what you have. That's the basis of the appeal here. Again, I'll say to you, if you don't know what you have in Christ, you're going to struggle to have a bold faith and this is not going to make sense to you. 
Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence or boldness, it's the same word, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. The appeal is made on the basis of what we have. And he says, we have boldness, we have confidence, because also in part we have a great priest. We have someone who's seated at the right hand of God ministering for us. This is the best news that you're ever going to hear. You can go to God right now through Jesus Christ. You can be in a relationship with the living God. I'm not talking about a a, a phony, conceptual, sort of a head game idea where you know he exists and you believe that he knows you exist. I'm talking about a genuine relationship. I'm talking about an interaction, or as the old saints would say, a communion, a fellowship with the living God. This is what is open for you. You have access to the most holy place. And as we've learned No one had free access to the holy place. Not even the high priest had free access to the holy place. He could only go once a year. They had to put bells on his robe in case they stopped hearing the bells, which meant he wasn't approaching God in the right way and they had to drag him out. Nobody had free access, but now you have free access. Literally, the door is open. There's a lot more to say in this text, but who needs just to remember that today? The entrance to the most holy place where God really is has been opened by Jesus Christ. You see, there was a, there was a curtain And here, the author uses an allegory between the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place. In other words, the place where where God said he would put his presence. There was a curtain there. And and he makes an allegory here to say that the curtain is, is in reality the body of Jesus. And historically, this is actually what happened. So that in Matthew's gospel, as it's recorded, that as Jesus Christ breathes his last breath, as his flesh perishes, as his flesh is torn, so there's an earthquake and the temple, the curtain into the most holy place is also torn. Can I tell you, that wasn't just a sign. That wasn't just, hey, this will be a cool symbolic reference. No, 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 no. That meant that in actuality, access to God is now possible. Incredible privilege. I pray that God would wake you and me and all of us up to this huge privilege that we have to go to him. Who's trying to solve their problems in their own strength? Anybody tired of that? Anybody here tired of of trying to feel like you have to make sure all the boxes are ticked and that you have to connect every single dot? Is, Is anyone here feeling like they don't have the resources to cope right now? If that's you, your feeling of that is not some imaginary feeling like, oh, gee, I wonder if you have this, uh, this affliction, this condition. No, it's called being human. Being human means you have limits. You have limitations. You can't be anything, everything. You can't tick every box. You cannot be perfect. You can't foresee the future. You can't predict what people are going to do. Even if you lived absolutely perfectly, you can't prevent yourself from harm. And guess what? And all of that thinking and strategizing and planning that's going on in between your ears, all of that is being housed in a vessel that's deteriorating by the day. So that even if you were right upstairs, The house that you're living in is falling apart, and it's vulnerable. Some of you know that all too well. 
Oh, that you might be united with someone who was more powerful. Oh, that, that you might draw the favor and affection and the attention of someone who made you and loves you. Oh, that you had recourse to talk, to, to unload your problems, to actually leave your cares at the feet of one who can do something. Maybe for some of us, it's time to stop talking and it's time to start praying. Talking is good. Prayer is better. Friends are good. God is better. Family, well, <laughs> usually good. Sometimes not. God looks at you and he says, in Christ, you are my family. I will be over your house. Now, if you can go to him and if the door is open, why would you walk down the hall and not even give him a look in? Let's approach God. Let's draw near to him. That's not the only exhortation. The second one, let's do it with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith, the, the, the fullness of faith. He's saying, let's not hedge our bets with God and let's not try to manipulate God. Let's not play this, this pretend Christianity. Stephen's doing a series in our evening service about hypocritical Christianity. My goodness, I don't know if there's anything sadder than people in the church who are enslaved to trying to justify themselves by their ministry or their actions or their activity. It's heartbreaking. And I, and I pray all the time, God forbid that's me. Lord, save me from that. Because we are meant to go with a heart that yearns to be received, a heart that yearns to be forgiven, a heart that is ready to see God in his rightful place, a heart that leverages his character against my concerns. This is what bold faith does. So approach God with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You, I'm telling you, Chris preached this well last week, if you're walking around trying to atone for your own sins, if you're trying to do penance for all the wrong things you've done, you will run yourself into the ground. And, and, and it's all meaningless anyway. You have to let God cleanse your conscience. You can't live in the past. If you have sinned or you are sinning, you need to turn from that. You need to acknowledge you've done the wrong thing and you need to let Jesus do what he said he would do, which is bear your sin. That's the whole purpose. And if we say, I don't know if I can, I can't let somebody do that for me, why? Why not? Usually it's pride. But not only do we approach God, no, Note baptism here. There's sort of four conditions. Full assurance, sorry, sincere heart. That means uh, approach him with integrity. No, don't try to manipulate him. Approach him with full assurance. That means resting in God to be God and Christ to be Christ and do what he said he would do. Come with a clean conscience that's been cleansed by the blood of Christ and come having your bodies washed with pure water. This is a reference to baptism. In other words, go through the steps of obedience. Baptism is meant to mark the entrance into the church. And the writer says, go in these ways. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Another way of putting this is let your confession not waver. Let your confession not waver. I was at a, I was at a kid's soccer game during the week. And, uh, you know, so much fun watching my kids run around and play. I think as a parent, that's one of the coolest things is to get to sort of cheer on your kids from the sidelines. And, uh, and, and I'm there and, and they're, using, they're using young kids for, for the ref. And, you know, dear, lovely kid, lovely kid. And, but as, as is the case with many, many young refs, the poor guy didn't have the confidence to blow the whistle. And, 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 and it was, it was, it was chaos because, you know, someone's getting knocked over. Oh, don't do that. You know? <laughs> oh, is that, is that a corner kick or is it a goal kick? It's a, it's a corner kick. Meanwhile, the, the goalie's already kicked it out, you know? 
And, and, and you just want to say, you have the whistle. <laughs> you can use it. It's okay. But Christians, sometimes when, when we waver in our hope, we're like the ref who doesn't know he has a whistle. We're like, well, you know, I hope I get to heaven. And no, yeah, I'm really looking forward to retirement. You know, that's, that's the thing I'm living for. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to, you know, being married or to having kids. And, you know, and we talk like the world. And what we're doing is we're, we're taking the flag of our hope and we're going, oh, there it is. Now I'm going to put it away. Oh, there it is. Now I'm going to put it away. Do you really hope in this? Do you have a real confidence in this? If this is your hope, fly the flag. If this is your hope, don't swallow the whistle. Don't put it down and pull it up, back it down. There's a world out there that needs to know the truth and when Christians are wavering in their confession of hope, it's very difficult, it's very confusing. The third thing, bold faith does is it considers one another. It considers one another. Now, the NIV and the ESV in their translation, they say consider how to spur on one another. Now, that's a good thing to do. It, I think part of consideration is, is, is understanding who you're working with and understanding how you relate to people so that you can, you, you can use wisdom. So considering how, there's a place for considering how. But what you need to understand is, in the original, what this says, the command is consider one another. He's saying, look around the room. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. This is the household of God, not the, not the building, the edifice. These people consider one another. Bold faith has the confidence to let go of self and to put others ahead of themselves. To put others first. Consider one another. Literally, it says, consider one another for the purpose of provoking love. Provoking love. Pro provocation in, in the New Testament, it, and even in the, in the ancient time of this writing, provocation was not something that was looked on as um, desirable. So, Paul would say, you know, love does not provoke. He could write that in 1 Corinthians 13. But here, he says, consider one another that love would be provoked. He's saying, poke at love. <laughs> Agitate love. We talked about yeast working through the dough. And part of kneading the dough is, is, is that agitation. It, it, it activates. And so he's saying, consider each other, look out for each other. And that love might be agitated so that we might go on towards love and to good deeds. 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently at this time, there were people who had started to withdraw from the fellowship. This is not the time to look around the room and say, oh, who's not here? <laughs> but there are people who were withdrawing from the fellowship. This is happening a lot in churches today. I know there's some people here we haven't seen in, in a long time. Some for reasons that are beyond their control. Others because I don't know why. I wish I did. But considering one another means not giving up the fellowship. Have you ever thought, I'm going to go to church because my brothers and sisters need me? That's the logic of this passage. It's not, well, church doesn't work for me. In fact, if that's our mindset, that I go to church because of what it contributes to me, we're doing the whole thing wrong. The whole thing wrong. I ought to be in church. If it does nothing for me, I still ought to be in church. I still ought to not forsake the gathering. Why? Because that's in the best interest of my brothers and sisters. That's, that's what helps them. You say, well, how does that work? It works because when Christ ascended on high, he poured out his spirit and his spirit indwells each and every believer in Jesus Christ. 
The Spirit manifests the life of God through what we call the gifts or the graces of the Spirit. Every Christian in this room has the Holy Spirit. When you don't come to fellowship, when you don't share your life with me, with the person sitting next to you, you are robbing that person from an experience of the manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life. We see and learn about God through each other. And we do this all the more as we see the day approaching. Well, this, it's appeal to privilege. It's an appeal to what we have. And this is what bold faith does. I can see I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Which means I'm going to have to go quick through these things, which might be a blessing. What bold faith doesn't do, verses 26 to 31, bold faith does not persist willfully in sin. It does not spurn Christ and his covenant. And it does not insult the spirit of grace. And here our author moves from an appeal to privilege what they have to an appeal of fear. The point is that they should be afraid. Just like I want my son to be afraid if he tries to put his hand on an oven that's been, a stove that's been left on. Just like I want any child to be afraid of cars coming in oncoming traffic. There is a place for fear, it's important. And here the author appeals rightly to fear. Verses 26 to 31, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. This is a picture of willful sin. And in this, there's echoes to the law in the Old Testament. Did you know there wasn't a sacrifice for deliberate sin? It was called the sin of the high hand. And basically it was you thumbing your nose at God, me thumbing my nose at God saying, God, I know what you say, I know what you want, but I'm not gonna do it. So take that. There was no sacrifice for that. The result in the Old Testament was you were cast out of the community. You didn't have a part with God's people. And on the testimony of the right number of witnesses, you could be put to death for trying to set aside the covenant, to try to say, this law doesn't apply to me. I know what God said, but I'm going to live outside of it. Now, this verse has caused much concern throughout the ages, concern for, for churches historically, particularly with respect to sexual sins. If you read the church fathers, there was a lot of There was a lot of discussion about what this meant. Some things that would make us very uncomfortable. The shepherd of Hermas, for instance, would write that, well, you can sin once after baptism and repent, but if you sin twice after baptism and repent, you're not saved. That's not what we believe. So what is this? I think it's important here that we distinguish between falling into sin, being caught in a sin, being ensnared by the flesh versus a willful decision to turn from Christ, a a, a rejection of Jesus, a a saying that I'm not going to have a part of this. And the Logically, the point is very clear. If you say, I have no part with you, Jesus, well, there's no other way to be clean. There's no other way to be forgiven. As Peter would say in his speech in Acts chapter 4, he said, there's no other name under heaven by which people may be saved. It's Jesus or nothing else. And so if you say, I'm not going to have Jesus, then who's going to cover your sin? Instead, all you're left with, verse 27, is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, literally the fury of fire. That will consume the enemies of God. 
God will bring judgment. You know, some people think if they leave Christianity or they leave the church community, they leave God. And they're suddenly off the, you know, they're now outside of his domain. Well, I, you know, I'm not a Christian anymore, so I don't have to worry about hell. What? <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore, so I don't have to worry about morality and sin. What? I hope you're right. <laughs> Instead, there's just an expectation of judgment. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot and who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who had insulted the Spirit of grace? He invites them in to consider this whole book, he's been comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And he says, all right, well, let, let's look what happened to people who rejected the covenant that Moses brought. If you reject the Ten Commandments and, and the covenant that Moses brought, you were liable to lose your life. You could lose your physical life. He's already established that that covenant was lesser. It was weaker. It was less glorious. It was less effective. It was, it was a replica. It was a copy. If if you lose your physical life for neglecting that covenant, the writer is saying, what do you think is going to happen if you reject this one? How much worse? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much worse is this punishment going to be? It's not simply, am I going to get punished, am I not? No, you will get punished, but it's how much worse is it going to be? And he invites them to think about that. I don't know if we like to think about that. Notice the spurning and notice the insult that it is to God. I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, this is hard for me to preach because I cannot get around the plain meaning of this text. I cannot get around the implications of what it is saying to us to us here and to the wider world. And in my heart, I feel a breaking and a loss and a burning. The Bible says in the last days, people will become lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God. Are we seeing that? But do you see, plain as day, you see, if you say, well, look, sin's not really a big deal. What have you just said about the cross? What have you just said about the blood of Christ? If you said, it doesn't really matter whether I walk in righteousness or not. Righteousness, sin, it's all sort of the same. It's just a religious category. It's just these things that people invented a long time ago. If that's your stance, what are you saying about Jesus? What are you saying about his blood? The author tells you what you're saying. You're saying to Jesus, we don't have to worship at your feet. Jesus, you come back under our feet. And how do we think it's going to go if we try to put Jesus under the soles of our shoes while God is in process of putting all the enemies of Jesus under the soles of his shoes? Who's going to win that? How's that going to go? It's also taking something that is holy and that is precious and it's, it's defiling it. It's saying it's a common thing. The blood of Christ, you know, might as well be the sludge in your drain. You know, the muck left over from the floods at your house. What's the blood of Christ? It's not powerful, it's nothing. It's a swear word now. People throw it around and treat it like rubbish. God says, this is the only means through which your soul will be cleansed, through which your conscience and the very core of your being can have the stain of sin removed. That's the only thing. It's only the blood of Jesus, nothing else. It's not your blood, not, not, not a ritual, only the blood of Jesus. And if we treat that as something that's just dogma, religious gobbledygook, What's God going to do? 
And I love the writer ends here. He says, and what's going to happen if we insult the spirit of grace? You see, this is the unpardonable sin because the spirit is here trying to woo and trying to win lost men and women to say, come into God's kingdom, be a part of it. Let yourself be forgiven. Let yourself be renewed and cleansed and restored. Be at peace with God. And if we say, nah, no thanks, what? For we know, verse 30, him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, man. Every wrong will be righted. Every assassination of God's character will be repaid. Every insult will be set back into what it should have been. Every debt will be recompensed. There will be retribution for the enemies of God. The only thing that saves us is the blood of Christ. We ought to be afraid. There's people who abuse these doctrines and hold them over people so strongly so that all they can see is the wrath of God and they're not, able, not even able to see the love of God, that's wrong.
trying to overcome this. When we do this, we're showing that we prioritize the material world more than the spiritual world. And lastly, he just notes, in a society that loves knowledge, our academic culture fosters critical study of religion, but it doesn't foster conversation about direct encounters with God. Brothers and sisters, let his name be on our lips. Let our faith be bold. Let us lean into the spirit and what he's doing. Let us walk in step with him that we may not suffer the fate of those who shrink back. No matter how angry you might be, no matter how disappointed you might be with God, no matter how much you might be suffering, do not turn back. No matter how confused you might be, do not turn back. Seeing Jesus makes all the difference. Peter the Apostle, when he was just Peter the Disciple, he gave a great answer once people were withdrawing from Jesus. I'll invite the band to come forward. But Peter, as, as everyone's departing from Jesus, Jesus looks at Peter and the, the, the disciples and, and he says, are you guys going to leave now too? And he says, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. He didn't have all the answers, but he knew he needed to stick with Jesus. The good news is, brothers and sisters, you don't need to know all the answers. You really need a priest. You need somebody to represent you to God. Jesus is doing that. If you stick with Jesus, you are in relationship with God. And later on, after Jesus rose from the dead, and they were suffering for his name, in Acts chapter 3, And they call them before the authorities and they tell them to stop or else they're going to keep beating them. The authorities looked at them and they thought, wow, there's no earthly explanation for your boldness. And all they could conclude was that they had been with Jesus. Seeing Jesus makes all the difference. Would you stand as we respond in worship?